Yeah, this morning's reading is taken from Hosea chapter 11. We're reading the whole chapter. It's on page 738 in your pew Bibles. Page 738 in your pew Bibles. God's love for Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the bowels, and they burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Were they not returned to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Israel's sin. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Friends, uh, welcome to uh, our service this morning. It's uh, good to be, we've worshipped in song and in prayer and we've heard a great kids talk as well, thinking about our Creator God. And we're going to be in touch with God's, what I call relentless love passionate love for his people despite their sin and disobedience. I'm going to ask as I pray that God would speak to us and encourage us with that great picture of our God. God, uh, we come in your presence and we ask that you would speak through your word, a word that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands in fact, to a rebellious nation. But a word that still speaks to us today. We pray that we would hear your word, that we would be drawn closer to you, understand your grace, love and mercy, that amazing grace, and that we would live lives of faithfulness and obedience. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, if you've been with us the last uh, three weeks, uh, this is week four in our uh, Hosea series. There's more to come next week. It sort of repeats the cycle next week, 12 to 14. Uh, and, and you've got a, touch of, a taste of that in verse 12, where again, they're rebelling, right? But what happens in chapter 11 
It's a very powerful uh, chapter here in the, in the middle of, or towards the end of Hosea. Because what happens is that uh, it presses our hearts next to the broken, lonely heart of God. You need, to, you need to pick that up, the broken, lonely heart of God in the midst of this. It's one of the bo- most uh, bold chapters in the Old Testament, indeed in the whole of the Bible, and exposes us to the mind and the heart of God in human terms. And Derek Kidner puts it this way, we are made to see God the Father in terms of accepted cost and anguish. God is a father rebuffed, torn between agonizing alternatives. May seem too human altogether, but this is the price of bringing home to us the fact that divine love is more, not less ardent or passionate and vulnerable than ours. And there is uh, no rejection and loneliness, for example, as painful as that of enduring, unrequited, unreciprocated love, where you give out love and nothing comes back. You give out love and the other person doesn't care. The wife who remains faithful in love while her husband walks away and no longer wants to be in the marriage. Or the 20-year friendship you may have with someone that comes to an abrupt end when one person withdraws without explanation. You rack your brain thinking, what did I do? What happened? Relationship broken, severed, and you almost never recover. Or the parent who endures in love for a child who refuses to reciprocate. The child who runs away. The child who will not listen. The child who will not enter into a relationship with you any longer. Now, Philip Yancey tells the story of a pastor who was battling with his 15-year-old daughter as an illustration. Uh, he said, I knew she was using birth control, and several nights she hadn't bothered to come home at all. We tried various forms of discipline, but nothing seemed to work. She lied to us. She deceived us. He said, I remember standing before the plate glass window in my living room, picture this, this father, staring out into the darkness, waiting for her to come home. I felt such rage. I wanted to be like the father and the prodigal son, yet I was furious with my daughter for the way she would manipulate us and twist the knife to hurt us. And of course, she was hurting herself more than anyone. I understood then the passages in the prophets uh, expressing God's anger. The people knew how to wound him, and God cried out in pain. And yet, I must tell you, when my daughter came home that night, or rather the next morning, I wanted nothing in the world so much as to take her in my arms, to love her, to tell her that I wanted the best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. So I think of Jesus' depiction of the waiting father in the parable of the prodigal son, heartsick, abused, yet wanting above else to forgive and begin anew, to announce with joy, this son, or this my son was dead, is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Friends, I need uh, your emotions to be moved today as you hear this. If you're not moved as you consider God's word and God's love and anguish, then you haven't entered into the word. Because only when we feel and get in touch with the frustration we feel over people we want to love and care for and encourage, can we sympathize with God's anguish over us and our disobedience. In chapters 1 to 3, Hosea, as you'll remember, used the image of an adulterous wife to illustrate Israel's rebellion 
In chapter 11, he uses the image of a rebellious son. In chapters 1 to 3, God was the faithful husband. In chapter 11, God is the loving, enduring parent. But firstly, the pain and loneliness of a vulnerable love, verses 1 to 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Right at the beginning, the grace of God shines out. When Israel was a child, I loved him. The choice was free, uh, as, it, as free as it was affectionate. I chose him. I loved him. And Deuteronomy says God chose Israel to be his people to love and to serve. Now, it's, it is interesting because from the perspective of the omniscience of God, or the, the all-knowingness of God, God knew that as he chose Israel to be the son, that they would rebel. He knew that one day he would have to send Jesus. Yet he still entered into that relationship with them. As a loving God, out of Egypt I called my son. I brought you out of slavery into the promised land, my son. Intimate relationships between God and his people with a sense of purpose and direction. So how did this son respond to such love? But the more they, but the more they were called, verse 2, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned images or incense to images. The child didn't listen. He says, the more Yahweh called, the more uh, Yahweh tried to draw Israel back, the son was rebellious. They broke the rules of the covenant. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. And verses 3 and 4 are heart-wrenching. And you've got to feel the pathos in these verses. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. It's the parent image, isn't it? And many of you uh, have young children here. You know what it feels like to pick up your little child and to guide them, to feed them, to look after them. Now, I remember when uh, Caitlin was born. Caitlin's my eldest. She's not young anymore. She's 29 now. And uh, almost going to hit the big 3-0 next year. Well, how did that happen? But I remember when they were the firstborn, and uh, there's the joy, you know, your first child, the love and the care you show, you guide them in. And everyone looks forward to that first word. Is it mummy or daddy, right? Uh, it was daddy. I mean, it doesn't matter what it was. Mummy, daddy. You teach them to walk, to read, to run, to swim. You love them. You want the best for them. You guide them into love for God and commitment to Jesus. You hope they'll read the Bible and they'll pray and, and, um, and you provide for them. You lead them with kindness. And we twice raced off to the hospital for stitches before she was the age of five. They didn't leave her there, bleeding, screaming. But you love your children as God loves us. But imagine the heartbreak if she grew up, that little girl of yours, and turned away from the parent love. Imagine if she became cold and calculating. Imagine if she rejected our love and our affection. What that would do to you. No, she hasn't done that, so I'm getting emotional. She hasn't even done that. She ran wild. She showed no respect, no appreciation. 
Now, I know that some of you know that feeling. Because some of you have the children you poured out love and commitment to over many years who have removed themselves, have moved away, and you, and you are hurting because they have done that. See, Israel, though, is no longer a child. She's like an aloof, scornful adolescence. Israel has forgotten or never realized or simply does not want to know what she owes or he owes to this relationship with God. Tender words by Yahweh. His love and affection has been rejected, treated with scorn and ignored. Now, familiarity still breeds contempt, doesn't it? And sometimes we can just think, oh, yeah, we know God, we follow God, and, you know, we've been Christians for 30 years. As we said last week, sometimes our hearts are hard. It's hard crust over it. It's not, uh, it's not amenable to the work of God and His Spirit to, to draw us closer to God and greater intimacy and love and commitment and service to Him. We know we have our peace with God, our sins are forgiven. We are children of the living God. And that was our theme at Men's Convention uh, that we were at yesterday. We are sons of the Father. We are loved, we are valued, we are secure in God. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no separation from God. Romans chapter 8, beginning and end of the chapters. They're all truths that was, we were reminded of yesterday, but the reminder was that knowing those truths ought to lead to a new lifestyle led by the Holy Spirit, transformed, no longer like we lived in the past, but this new life. Sometimes we get lazy in our relationship with God. We get comfortable. We sometimes live in such ways that God, we don't really believe God watches us or notices us how we spend our time, our money, what we think about, what we dream, what we plan. And sometimes even Christians like us who have been Christian for a long time can throw tantrums at God, tantrum, tantrums of independence. I'll do it my way. And sometimes we'll say, I know what God says, but I'm not listening. And I come across that quite a lot. Or I know God says that in the Word, but I'm just not going to do that. And you picture that little child, remember? They, they put their fingers in their ears and go, I'm not listening. <laughs> Don't talk anymore. I'm not listening. And sometimes we're like that with God. We're encouraged not to break God's heart. We remember Romans 8, 29 to 30. God foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And he glorified us. His sovereign work to bring us into his family. Because let me say, I'm completely in awe of the grace and mercy of God. Once I should not be standing here preaching the word of God. Young Greek kid, born overseas, migrant family, brought to this country so someone can bring the gospel to me. To see my life transformed. And yet I realize that I constantly fail God in different ways. Sometimes I can throw the tantrums. Sometimes I can say, no, listening, enough of that. But God says because the people were like that, judgment was going to come on the guilty people. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refused to repent? Rather than trusting in Yahweh their God, they sought military alliances with Egypt and with Assyria against God's wishes. They thought they would save themselves by having alliances. He says, no, the nation will now return to Egypt in the sense that it will return into bondage 
and Assyria will rule over them. We know that there were some Israelite uh, fugitives, by the way, who, uh, while the Assyrians were coming over, they, they took off down to Egypt. But it's probably a reference to the fact when he says you go back to Egypt, you go back into bondage and they'll be in bondage to Assyria. The nation will return to slavery from which God had once delivered them in the historic exodus uh, from Egypt. Assyria will now be Israel's king. And the cause of judgment, judgment is not just the sins of apostasy and rebellion, a persistent refusal to repent. God has spoken to them, turn, repent, but they refuse to repent. Ogilvy says, the repentance God longed for was more than an outward contrition, but a reorientation of life and personality and obedience to the ethical and moral requirements of the covenant. It wasn't enough to say, oh God, we believe in you, as we've seen. A number of times I said, oh you know, God, what do you mean? We acknowledge you. And God says, no, you don't. You've got no idea. And he sends them into exile. He says, you'll go into exile, but there will be an invasion of your land. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plants. And so the picture is that the warfare, when the Assyrians come in, it won't simply be in the country areas. They're going to go into the major cities. They're going to take over the major cities. And I guess if you think of the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine, for at the beginning you think, oh, well, it's just on the outskirts, like in the country areas. No, 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 they're not coming to the country areas. They're coming to Kiev. And God is saying that the enemies will come and take over the, the nation and send the people into exile. They'll put an end to their plans. The false prophets have been saying, you know what they've been saying to the people? It's okay, we're all good. We're prosperous. We have good alliances. We go to religious festivals. We go to church every Sunday. Don't you worry. It's all good. The false prophets have led them astray and their plans will be put to an end. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. They call him God Most High. Yeah, no, God, yeah, yeah, we believe in you. But they're determined to turn from me, he says. God says, I know what they're like. They never repented. Friends, the expression turn or burn is an awful expression. Maybe you've used it in the past, maybe I used it in the past growing up, young people, we want to reach everyone for Jesus. And they used to say, oh, turn or burn. If you don't turn to Jesus, you're going to burn in hell. I can't use that expression. Do you know why? Because there is a judgment coming. And there's a real hell, the Bible says. And Jesus warned us from going there. And we don't want to joke about the fact that people are going to suffer under the judgment of God for eternity. We want to, want to do anything we can to help them to repent, to find peace with God, to know they spend eternity in heaven, not under God's judgments. Friends, hell is real. And it's helpful to, to refer to that today because what I've noticed in the Christian church is this. When you do not address these hard topics from time to time, people forget it. They don't believe it's real. Amen? Uh, we just, oh, you know. I mean, really, we're, as someone said, we're all closet universalists. You know what that means? Universalist believes that in the end, everything will be okay, everyone will be safe. The thought of someone suffering, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, under the judgment of God because of his holiness, we don't like to think about that. But if we, think about, if we don't think about it, then we're not thinking the way Jesus thinks. 
And we're not thinking about it. it does, we're not motivated to do all we can to save the lost and to reach the nations of the earth. See, God sent the missionaries to the ends of the earth, he said, to make disciples of all nations. Because just because you grew up in Hindu is not enough to get you into heaven. Because you grew up as a Muslim and you're a faithful Muslim is not enough to get you into heaven. Jesus sent us to the nations to make disciples because he is the only way to God. And Jesus told the story of a rich man in Luke 16. It's a parable. But parables also tell truth. And he was like many of the affluent 8th century Israel. He gave no thought to God or to the poor. He only, this rich man only thought about himself. He dies and he goes to Hades. Hades is the place of punishment waiting, awaiting hell for that final day. And you see, the rich man was suffering. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, in the end it's all good. We all end up together in heaven. No, not at all. He was suffering. He cried out for mercy. But it was too late. God's patience was exhausted. The opportunity, opportunity for salvation had passed. Some would say, was the Christian God some form of vengeful monster? that He wants to punish people who just don't listen to him. No, well, in fact, he spoke to Israel and through his prophets, and they didn't listen. And he finally sent his son. And this is the type of God he is. And people didn't respect him either. They nailed him to a cross. But through that nailing to the cross, he took the punishment for our sins. He died in our place. And friends, that's not vengeance, that's love. But God's love and justice come together. And we also know that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise about returning, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the callous one is not God, but us, who raise our fist at God. And people in our society continue to walk further from God and do their own thing. And in the end, if there happens to be a God, they want to go to heaven. When God sends people to hell, he does so because they deserve it. They're sinners, they're rebels, they're unrepentant. They don't want God to interfere with their lives. So in the end, God leaves them alone. The Bible's picture of hell is darkness, separation, punishment, eternal fire. Friends, God will punish our sins just as certainly as he punished Israel's sins. And according to the Bible, there are only two places, listen carefully, in the universe where he can do that. He will punish sins. One is hell, when men and women experience forever the divine indignation against their moral perversity. And the other is the cross, where the Son of God absorbed in his own person, in one monstrous stroke of divine justice, that same divine indignation on our behalf. There's time to turn back to God. For God's people, Isaiah's time, it was too late. They were going to go to judgment. But for us, there's time to turn back and to find life with God. Then verse 8 to 9, we have the glory of God's grace. It says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? God will judge them, but he's not going to ultimately abandon them. How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebohim? My heart is changed within me, or my heart is churned up 
the word says. All my compassion is aroused. As I think about bringing my judgment, my heart is also saying, I've made a commitment to you, a covenant commitment. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring good to you. And through you, the Messiah will come. God must judge his people. He'll do that. But it will not be a final judgment. There will be a restoration time. He says, I can't treat you like Adma or Zeboim. That were cities that had been destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 10, Genesis 14. He says, I can't treat you like that, just completely wipe you out, because you're my people. I love you. And I will send you into judgment for discipline, then I'll bring you back. God's compassion is aroused. His sympathy is stirred. His heart is turning over. Israel will be punished with exile, but God will not obliterate his people. There's a plan. I will not carry out my fierce anger, verse 9, nor will I devastate a frame again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They won't get what they deserve. They will get grace, he says. So what did happen? That was God's promise of judgment. Well, Ephraim and Israel, as we've said before, fell in 722 BC and was deported to Assyria. That's about 722 years before Christ. But a remnant of, of the north threw themselves, a remnant means a portion of the north, threw themselves in uh, with Judah in the south. And then when Judah was deported to Babylon, about 587, God brought them back 70 years later, back to the promised land. So in a sense, what was left of Israel came back with Judah back into the promised land as the new Israel. And through that new Israel, the Saviour, Jesus, comes into the world. So this is a great homecoming, verse 10 and 11. They will follow the Lord. They haven't followed the Lord up to this stage. They've been rebellious adolescent children, running away from God. They will follow the Lord. And the word there, don't forget the word Lord is Yahweh. They will follow their covenant God, Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. That means from the Mediterranean Sea. They will come from Egypt further south. They'll come uh, like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves from the east. They're coming from the west, from the east, from the south. They're all coming back, his people. It's going to be a great homecoming with adoration of God rather than apostasy. No more serving the Baal. No more offering uh, sacrifices to other gods. A brand new day for the people of God. As we saw two weeks ago, the initial fulfillment came after the Babylonian exile when the people of God returned to Jerusalem. But the New Testament also sees a fulfillment of this promise in the incorporation of the Gentiles into the people of God. We see that in Romans 9. And we are the Gentiles, also being part of God's people. It would be achieved through the work of Jesus Christ, the new Davidic king who would rule over his people. My friends, that final work of God was a terribly costly work. It was a time of excruciating agony and abandonment for the Lord Jesus. When it was during the last dark hours of his crucifixion that Jesus himself knew the ultimate pain of loneliness, of abandonment. When the full weight of the sin of the world, past, present and future, was placed upon him, he endured for us the just punishment of the wrath of God. Writhing in inexplicable pain, inexplicable pain, sorry, he became sin, though he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew 
and no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Lonely, forsaken, dying, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Left alone to die, to bear the penalty for our sins. And those dark hours between noon and three in the afternoon were completed. Jesus, reassured by the Father, commanded his spirit to the Father's hands and said, it is finished. Does God love you? Hang on the cross. It's finished. It's done. Your judgment's taken away. Death has been defeated. Sin has been overcome. The devil will not win. Friends, in Hosea chapter 14, and we'll come more to that next week as we conclude, in verses 1 to 2, there's another call to repentance because we get to 12 and 13 again, you get to the explanation why they're going into judgment again. It repeats the story in a shorter version. Then 14, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins. And receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. In a similar way, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches the gospel, when people, the Holy Spirit has just been poured out on people and they've been touched by God and changed and transformed, and, and people wondering what's going on, Peter then gets up. Hey, this is in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. A brand new day had come, reconciliation with God is possible. Jesus was the saviour who died on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. You too can come back to him. You killed him. And they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? You mean, we've killed the Messiah. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 people went, God is loving. God is merciful. God is just. There's a way of forgiveness. There's a way of reconciliation with God. Despite our sin, despite our brokenness, God welcomes us back. Come home. And then the church began to grow and blossom and be persecuted and spread to the nations of the earth. God's word doesn't end in the book of Hosea. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the call to repentance and faith. May God help us to know him, to trust him, and may God help us to take this good news to others that they too will trust in Jesus Christ and find new life in him. God, uh, we are not worthy, so we thank you for grace. We thank you for the once-for-all offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Help us to be truly repentant, to live according to your covenant, to not only call you God and Father, but to submit to you as God and Father and live as children, authentic children of the living God. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We do now pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, to make us more like Jesus, for the glory of his name. Amen.